The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com slash guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. Can it really be the end of 2015? Oh yes, it can. For anyone driven to despair by watching vloggers, that's video bloggers to you and me, take over the top of the book charts, there's good news too. James Daunt, head honcho of Waterstones Bookshop, has taken the chain back into profit for the first time in nearly a decade, on an unfashionable belief in old-fashioned books and the people who sell them. With me in the studio to discuss these and other developments are the critic Alex Clark and our very own Richard Lee. Alex, the vlogger phenomenon is a bit new and scary, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it is if you have to work out what it is, which makes me feel awfully old. So one of the most successful is a 21-year-old called Alfie Days who got a publishing deal on the back of 4.6 million Mm. YouTube subscribers and was apparently mobbed by 8,000 fans at his Birmingham launch in November. Um, And the book is called... The pointless book. And and just just tell me a bit about what's in it. Well, it's 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 sort of a mixture of games and pranks and jokes and challenges and it comes with a free downloadable app which means that readers can interact with Alfie as they're reading the book. So it's a sort of really 21st century thing, not like the sort of thing you and I've been trogging through all year. Yes, it's it's really suited to its audience. And I mean, I see what you mean. It's it's always sort of scary when there's a new phenomenon that we don't quite understand. But, you know, it's out, there have always been big explosions of popular things uh, that we don't quite get the measure of. Who knows whether things like that will sort of last and, and become it- a kind of fixture, you know, but... It was Sharon Osbourne a few years back, wasn't it? I mean, it, that sort of celebrity yes, exactly. memoir has, has gone. Well, I don't, I'm not sure it's gone, but I do think there was a, a, a moment when it was absolutely sort of all-conquering, wasn't it? That was the thing that you had to have on your list, and publishers would pay really very significant amounts of money for them. And I wonder if, you know, obviously all those books probably didn't do as well as it was hoped that they would do and there's probably a little bit of retrenchment but publishing needs big successes and if they come from vloggers well you know it keeps the industry industry going Uh, but having said that these are things that it seems to me aren't really books as such as they're just kind of the latest thing that the celebrity has to have the celebrity Mm. is famous people want to find out about the celebrity so the celebrity can uh, get hits on youtube or it can bring out a perfume or it can do a line of boxer shorts and why not have a book as well it's not really very much portal into the celebrity's life in a exactly. way. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. another string to the celebrity's bow, another revenue stream, if you like, rather well, than actually a kind of cultural object. The interesting thing about that, isn't it, is the sort of gap that's closed slightly between the fan and the celebrity. So celebrity in the past, there was a distance and distance was part of the allure. And now actually the allure is more to feel that you are part of the celebrity's life. That you're and reading the book sort of, yeah. along with Alfie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is partly And he's also, this is, here's another little, this is sad, isn't it? I happen to know that he's the boyfriend of Zoella and therefore the sort of brother out of law of Sug and they're two other vloggers so so it's almost like a sort of small family business but I think maybe we should pass over So you're saying they're sort of like (laughs) vlogging royalty? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there's an in crowd And they're all of 21. (laughs) Richard, let's pass over. We need to do this ourselves, don't we? (laughs) Let's go to the absolutely to the other extreme to James Daunt who I mentioned in my intro who came up through the indie bookshop chain Daunt's took over Waterstones everybody said it's a dying duck. It's all about digital. 
hey, presto, eight years later, it turns out not to have been all about digital. Yeah, they seem to be on course to make a profit for the first time since the recession, which is kind of extraordinary. Is it, you know, it's the one high street chain bookshop left in the UK, and they're actually making some money selling books, so hooray. And one of the things he did was to give local managers back choice of stock. So they gave up three for twos, and they gave up the centralised ordering system. It's also taken away the uniforms, hasn't it? So you can just turn up you know, as a person, and then people who also people can talk to you about what books people might like to read. The idea is that if you can tell a bookseller what you've just read, then they should be able to tell you, oh, well, you might want to try this. It's very much back to the kind of the business of actually selling books. It's almost the bookseller is taking over the role of the librarian, isn't it? And the poor old librarians are being axed all over the place, aren't they? And then suddenly you have this investment in the idea of a person with wisdom who can advise people as to what they want to read. But isn't that what booksellers have always done? I mean, that's, that was the point of the book. Well, I suppose that's what they did and then it went into sort of abeyance, didn't it? And certainly, you know, a lot of the times if you chat to a writer or you chat to a publisher, you find out that they often were a Waterstones bookseller some time ago, which is not to say that many obviously sort of stay being booksellers and very good ones but people go off and do other things but that's where they started i wish it didn't mean booksellers or librarians and i hope it doesn't um because the sort of you know the continuing trend for libraries to be curtailed and closed is is not good news for well, the numbers that are down 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 yeah, all yeah, the way in the yeah. libraries whereas in the in the in the sales for the first 36 weeks of this year sales were up print sales of print books were up yeah. by 4.6 percent yeah. which is first time there's been a rise since 2007 and there's publishers in the US also early this year were saying that the ebook sales are down by 10% greeted with glee in many quarters as kind of oh the, the book has won here we go um, but I think it's, um, it's probably a bit more complicated than that isn't it um, because the idea that people are going to just stop reading on their Kindles or they're not going to download books anymore onto their phones or whatever is just I think that's just kind of pie in the sky and not what you would want anyway surely I mean it's this either or thing again isn't it why do you why must we choose why do we choose it's not how people really are I mean I don't know anybody who only reads or, or one of you know has made a choice to only do one or the other but one point is that people aren't necessarily going to read ebooks on Kindles isn't it I mean they're going to read on all sorts of other mm. devices mm. including phones goodness knows how anyone can read a novel on phones but people tell me they do it seems to actually be quite a useful thing because it's quite small and you can hold it and you can you know just be on a, bit, a crowded tube or on a or on a bus or you know almost you just have it with you all the time and you can just dip in and out when you want to one of the really nice things about the figures as well though is that it's kids books are doing extremely well the kids books sales are up 3.6 percent in the same period so it's not as if the print sales are being driven just by old people like us <laughs> who <laughs> haven't worked it out it's people actually making an active choice to i mean obviously some kids books are bought by parents for kids but clearly the kids are still reading them otherwise the parents would give up at some point let's go back over the year um and do a sort of january to december and actually you could do january to december there's a really sort of horrible side of it which is that it's bookended by two terrorist attacks in paris well it started on the 7th of january when gunmen burst into the offices of the satirical magazine charlie hebdo and then there was a siege in the print works and hostages at the Porte de Vincennes. There was two or three days worth of, of terrible things, which seemed almost at some point to have been predicted by a book by Michel Houellebecq's uh, Soumission. Um, there was, in fact, there was a, a hoax went round, which purported to be a passage from the book predicting exactly this attack, and he had to go into hiding and was under police protection. It was massive bestseller, even though the reviews when it arrived in England were, were fairly mixed. As they always are, of course, are they not? For for Welbeck, who is not only obviously a very controversial writer in the subject matter, but he's also stylistically very kind of divisive, isn't he? You know, his books really are strong stuff to take, but they're also not exactly 
things that you slide into reading particularly easy on a sort of, you know, curled up on the sofa. Absolutely. And this one, a, a book which I think he's seems to be very unnovelistic in a lot of ways. Mm, a lot of the mm. kind of the interesting things that you might expect to happen. There are sort of riots, there are marches, there are great philosophical debates about, about what's happening in France in the book. And you don't really see much of them. They're mostly glimpsed on the telly or they're, they're reported in slightly magazine style kind of featurey treatment of, of the political situation. So it's it's a very kind of unnovelistic book in some yes. ways. Yes, yes, and I think he's been getting more like that, more and more like that with the last books. And I say this sort of admiringly, but you kind of don't feel that he's sitting there thinking what will please the readers. <laughs> that is not that is not really his way, we might say. Well, let's move forward a month to February, and February brought news of a new book from Harper Lee, which well, back to Harper Lee. I mean, could you get more different? Not really. Um, yes, this was the sort of news that what is it, fifty odd years after publication. 50- 55 years, years yeah. after the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird, there was discovered this, this um, well, sort of prequel slash sequel, really. The book itself, Go Set a Watchman, tells tells the story after um, To Kill a Mockingbird, because, but it was, of course, written before To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a sort of complicated publishing, but basically it is a sort of an early draft from which... Harper Lee's editor extracted the thing that would go on to become To Kill a Mockingbird and you know it became another kind of story though didn't it? It became the story of sort of global publication. And possibly mooted at the time elder abuse. I mean well, the, the dogs of war were let loose on this one weren't they? Absolutely as soon as the announcement came people were questioning whether she was in a fit state to give her consent. I mean it's partly off the back of there was a, a number of legal disputes that she got involved with since her her sister Alice who died I think last year uh, since her sister Alice stopped looking after affairs a, a lawyer called Tonya Carter started looking after them and she got involved with a couple of the series of disputes about copyright and so on that people were questioning whether she was getting bounced into publishing this book. Is it any good? I mean, you said it's a prequel. It was written before. Is it a good thing that it's been published? There, I mean, I think, the, I think the thing is, you couldn't really in the end separate it from all the noise that was around it. I actually think if it had been published without the noise, it would have been a very interesting curiosity and it would have been an interesting thing to read and see how one thing became another thing because it was essentially read as a is it any good it it sort of doesn't stand up to that kind of scrutiny I don't think Uh, so my answer is sort of no should it have been published well again that's to do with the the sort of noise around it Um, the business with the idea that people got really shocked um, when Atticus Finch you know this sort of um icon of civil rights was revealed to have seriously um, racist attitudes, I think was a kind of extraordinary thing, which in a way revealed a sort of blindness when you're reading To Kill a Mockingbird. It was very much a book of its time. This is very much a book of its time. And actually, it reveals a very sort of complex um, portrait. But again, that idea of people having this kind of proprietorialness, this kind of ownership of, of a character. I mean, we must say, perhaps predominantly because he became a very famous film character because he was played by Gregory Peck, uh, was a sort of interesting thing to observe, wasn't it? You you asked, should it have been published? And I mean, I guess I'm always in favour of publishing things. It's more about the manner in which it was published. Mm. I mean, how else could you possibly publish a novel by Harper Lee 55 years later? I mean, but the idea that it was in some sense a book that would stand up with or next to To Kill a Mockingbird, I think think is problematic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've dispatched Harper Lee then after half a century. (laughs) 
Um, how about a lot of stuff about diversity? Um, so it's another way in which the publishing industry is examining itself, whether or not it is actually changing or not. Um, do we think it is changing or is, is this navel gazing that's going nowhere? I mean, like there was a big provocation by Carmilla Shamsi in the middle of the summer about asking for publishers to put a hold on publishing by men to allow women to come through. There's been a, a lot of stuff about black and ethnic minority publishing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, a real year of it, hasn't it? I mean, it's, I think it opened perhaps maybe back in April even with the world of science fiction, uh, where the, the Hugo Awards, which are nominated by the public and then voted for by the public, were almost taken over by a, a bunch of people who decided that they'd got too lefty. So the writers led by Theodore Beale and a fellow called Brad Torgerson suggested some titles which were kind of right wing and stand up and good enough that you should vote for them. And this caused an enormous kind of stramash about about, about whether there's a kind of responsibility for fiction and science fiction in particular to look beyond and to welcome in voices that aren't necessarily part of the mainstream. A dispute that wound up having the effect of people actually deciding not to vote at all in some categories because there wasn't anybody who wasn't on this list of kind of acceptable right-wing fiction that had been proposed. And it also wound up with Liu Shixin, who's from China, winning with uh, the three-body problem in August. And this was just one of the, a series of things, along with Carmen Shamsi, who's, whose challenge was taken up by a publisher and other stories, and also the debate over the World Book night titles where 15 titles were were suggested uh, for next year's world book night event not one of which was by anyone who's black asian minority ethnic this i think it seems to me is is an indication that the change is happening and that people are beginning to take notice of the change but it's hard it's difficult and uh, there's always the question of whether you need to focus on an, an issue such as diversity or whether you just Carry on doing what you've been doing all along and hope that it comes right. Special pleading, Alex. Surely special pleading can't work in publishing, can it? It's a meritocracy. Well, I think there's a real difference between when you look at a prize shortlist, and I'm not talking about about, um, what you were talking about specifically, Richard, but when you look at a prize shortlist, that always seems to me, when people say, oh, look at this, it's all male or it's all white, that is too late. That is not the point at which we should be looking at the issue because all everything has happened by then. It's sort of looking at something at the kind of final point. But when you have something like World Book Night, now that is designed to promote reading far beyond a sort of small cloister of readers, of people who already like reading. That promotion is there to give free books to readers, to encourage people to read. And if you then don't reflect the country, the world that we live in, in the books that you're giving to people, what are you doing? Let's just remi- How do you then argue that people aren't reading enough? I mean, no wonder. Let's just remind people what World Book Night is. The books have been chosen, and it's a list of books which will be given away in the new year. People sign up to get a stack of books that they then will give away to people, and the idea being people who don't normally read. So, I mean, you see people um, trying to give away books in the street or you see people kind of getting ringing people up who they half know and saying well would you like a free book and the idea is as you say to broaden the pool of people who are interested in reading who are interested in reading books by men alex (laughs) well you know this is this is my point we live in a diverse country we live in a diverse world if you are given books that reinforce a message that you know that is not the world of, of literature the barriers go up and what also strikes me is quite beyond the fact that actually we would you know we sit here we would love everybody to read books and we would love everybody to read a broad range of books because that's what we do but we sit here with publishers you know saying that their audiences are shrinking i mean they need to find new audiences it's clearly a business argument apart from anything else you want to make 
your product appeal to the most number of people. And the other thing is your question about special pleading, I think, is it's a false dichotomy. The idea is that if you choose the way you've been choosing all the way along and it just happened to be white men at the top every single time, the idea that that's because they're the best just seems silly to me. I mean, if you, if you look, as you say, at an earlier stage of the process and you look at everything that's coming in, then anyone who's ever seen a slush pile of any sort will know that there's some really, really good stuff. And then beyond that, there's some stuff that's fine. And when you're choosing among the stuff that's fine, then if the stuff that's fine that you're choosing is always the same you guys... You to look at what's, what's guiding then there's your a process. choices. There's a process issue there. And I don't, in the, I'm talking about shortlists and prizes. I mean, I think judges of prizes have to look at their own unconscious bias. Of course you do. But I think the real problem happens earlier on. So looking at the two of the big prizes, the major poetry prize this year and the major fiction prize, both won by Jamaicans. So Claudia Rankin mm. won, won the Forward Poetry Prize and Marlon James won the Booker with A Brief History of Seven Killings. This is the first is this, ever these, Jamaican to, to are these win the standouts or I mean are, are these flashes in the pan or do you think this reflects more a bigger narrative I think in terms of the booker you definitely when you look at the short lists and long lists over the kind of recent past you clearly see an appetite and of course because the prize is now open to Americans um you see an appetite to broaden what we read and to get different voices. And certainly Marlon James, I mean, you could hardly think of a better winner in that sense because it is a novel about voices. It's a novel of many, many voices, many different registers, many ways of telling a story. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. The Guardian has always been a community of readers, journalists and contributors. And now our live events are bringing these people together. The Guardian events are The Guardian at its best, which is a two-way conversation involving the reader and having a real, genuine, thriving debate. Could be anything from food and culture, arts, to politics, to foreign affairs. To see what events are coming up and to check out the benefits of membership, go to members.theguardian.com. Also, subscribe to The Guardian Live podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud and other reputable audio platforms. So what of the other books on the Booker list, since this is one of the benchmarks of the year, isn't it? Hanya Yanagihara's Little Life was incredibly controversial, wasn't it? Much more controversial than Marlon James and absolutely split people between those who passionately loved it and those who passionately hated it. And we divided along those lines on the Guardian Books desk. Yes, I, I must say, I, I wouldn't say passionately, but I, I wasn't convinced by it. I wasn't a fan of that book. I did find it compelling. Uh, I could see why people got gripped by it. I didn't want to kind of throw it away because I was bored. But I found the idea of it as a very harrowing tale failed for me because I didn't feel I learned anything from it in the end. I didn't feel it expanded my knowledge. It felt like a construction. It felt like an artifice to me. It was another big book and it's been a year of big books, hasn't it? Or at least it's been, or has it been a year of big books? Is this year's crop any bigger than other years? 
No, I mean, there certainly have been some high-profile ones. I mean, the, uh, Marlon James's book was more than 700 pages. Uh, little Life, again, not little at all. Another more than 700 pages. Uh, there's even a, a notable debut uh, from this year of, of more than 900 pages from Garth Risk Helberg, City on Fire. We carried a, a piece of news uh, on the site last week about um, a survey that had been produced, uh, which claimed to show a 25% rise in the average page size between this year and 1989. But 1999 sorry so over 15 years and so arguably I mean there, there's some evidence as well from if you look at booker winners the booker winners of the 1970s early 1970s are broadly speaking smaller in paperback than the mm-hmm. booker winners of the last few years even though Julian Barnes's 2011 winner A Sense of an Ending it's very slim indeed the, the, the average is significantly bigger than those books published in the early 70s so I mean arguably there's a bit more room in, in publishing for books that are bigger and people have said that this is perhaps because people are getting used to the box set as a kind of narrative template so that people's tolerance for large canvas or for characters who return or develop over a very large scale is is increasing but equally you've seen much shorter books smaller books as well I think um, we have a sense of big books also because of this emergence of series or, again, very high-profile series. I mean, obviously, Canal Scarred, but this has been really the year of Ferrante, hasn't it, and the conclusion Elena of that. Elena Ferrante. Elena Ferrante, yeah. uh, my brilliant friend, and the rest of them, the, the other three books in the series, which finally concluded this August. And there are other series. Amitav Ghosh was, was one, another, another series that concluded. And I think the kind of appetite for those books, you know, that you can really commit to this long reading experience. Oh, it's so pleasurable though, isn't it? I mean, looking at Anne Tyler's trilogy, which was, she was up for the booker, mm. um, or Jane Smiley. Mm, yes, exactly. And you, you can just immerse yourself the last and you know, years, that, yes. you know that you're making an investment that's going to last you for quite a while. Yes, you feel in sort of capable hands, don't you? Richard, you mentioned the health of children's publishing in particular. So let's pop along to the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize and find out the books that the guests there are enthusing about. My name is Neve and I'm 10 years old. My favourite book was El Defo by C.C. Bell. I liked El Defo because it had a lot of emotion in it and it was sad at some parts and happy at some as well. Tony Bradman. Um, my favourite book of this year was Friday's Not My Name by John Walter, uh, which I thought was an absolutely remarkable historical novel set at the end of the American Civil War full of um, great characters. I think the central character is kind of a mix of um, Oliver Twist and Huck Finn, and a wonderful story, um, massive issues, religion, race, all sorts of stuff, but brought off uh, with pace, verve, and um, real skill. So yeah, it's, it's a rare book that I like that much, but that was, it was that good. My name is Nat, and I'm 11. My favourite book was An Island of Our Own by Sally Nichols. I really liked it because it was in the first person and it had a lot of detail and emotion in it. SF Said. I think my favourite book this year is Five Children on the Western Front by Kate Saunders. I was crying by the end of the prologue and I more or less didn't stop crying until the end of the book. But I was also uplifted by it. I was given hope and wonder, spine-tingling awe. Uh, It's a kind of take on E. Nesbitt's Five Children and It, uh, but it does extraordinary things with it. Historical fiction, fantasy fiction, science fiction, what is it? Just brilliant, brilliant literature. My name is Noah and I am 11 and my favourite book was Five Children on the Western Front by Kate Saunders. I really liked this book because I felt like I knew the characters. 
and Frank Cultural Voice. And the novel that blew me away this year was Lilla by Marilyn Robinson, which I imagine quite a lot of people are going to say, but it is completely amazing. And I never saw it coming. I read the two other books in the series, and I really wasn't expecting this kind of dangerous, hectic, Steinbeck out in the desert with a knife type of thing to come from that author at that time. So I was completely caught up with it and blown away and humbled by it. Your three authors who are most associated with literature for young people, but you don't read necessarily in, in that area. What, what, what are your sort of particular enthusiasms? Well, I read across a lot of areas. I do read a lot of literature for young people, a lot of children's books. Um, but at the moment, I seem to be reading an awful lot of... Uh, nature writing and geology. Uh, I've recently discovered a book by Jaquetta Hawkes from I think 1951 called A Land, which is a portrait of Britain starting with the creation of the universe and going up to 1951. Absolutely mind-blowing, amazing book I'd recommend to anybody. I'd sort of call it psychogeology. It's poetic, amazing, slightly off the wall, but really a phenomenal read. So I think most children's writers do read very, very broadly. Tony? I definitely agree with that. I mean, I read a vast spectrum of stuff, a lot of um, non-fiction for research, particularly because I'm writing a lot of historical fiction, a lot of uh, historical fiction. I'm a big fan of um, popular historical writers like Bernard Cornwell. I think he's wonderful. Uh, just reread Mary Renault's Fire from Heaven, mm-hmm. which is the most amazing book. I read it for the first time in my 20s, but I reread it, and it's amazing. It's about a gay character... Uh, the writing is superb, it's absolutely wonderful, and it, this creation, this evocation of the world. And SF Said, we were talking earlier, and he was saying that, you know, science fiction and historical fiction, they're both about creating worlds that you can inhabit as a reader. Um, but I read a lot of children's fiction as well, and there's some wonderful stuff out there. David Armand is a great writer. Um, and I've just picked up, uh, I've started reading a book by someone called Maya Gabriel, and it's called Beetle Boy, and I've read the first chapter, and it's absolutely superb. So, lots of good stuff. Frank. Um, I just read anything, the same as you two, it's quite wide-ranging. I've got a lot of children, I kind of pick up on their recommendations a lot, so my older boys are pushing lots of economics at me. How how many children do you have? I have seven, and my oldest is 30, and my older kids are very political, so I've been reading a lot of politics. But I love reading the Phoenix comic with my little one as well. How old's your little one? He's 10. So we're big fans of uh, Evil Emperor Penguin and Bunny vs. Monkey. My name is Charlotte and I am 10 years old. The book I really liked was El Defo and the parts that were the best for me was when she always got a friend and she would find more friends with just getting one. Hello, my name is Jenny Valentine. I'm the author of Fire Colour One and the book that I've loved, loved, loved this year is Song for Ella Gray by David Armand because it is the most incredibly fearless piece of writing and it just flows and the black pages are really cool too. My name's Matthew and I'm 11. My favourite book was My Name's Not Friday, which was by John Walters. I really liked it because it was all really mysterious and all that. I'm Kevin Crossley Holland, poet and writer for children, and I didn't really mean to choose this, but I think I better. It's Robert McFarlane's Landmarks. And the thing is that it is the most astounding lexicon of words used, partly used, half forgotten, totally forgotten, divided into all the various constituents, components of an English or a British landscape with wonderful introductory essays. 
This is a tremendous moment for writing of that kind, and he gives great tribute to Barry Lopez and Arctic Dreams, but now this has become an all-in British cultural phenomenon, the number of great writers there are about our landscape from all the different spokes to the hub. My name is May, and I'm 10 years old, and my favourite book was Apple and Rain. I really liked it because it was funny, but it was sad at parts. So lots of great children's books there, and I suspect that David Armand is a book for all ages, which was the winner of our prize. Uh, let's come back now to our own recommendations in the studio. Alex, how many books have you read this year? Oh. <laughs> Would you know, I think they should keep a record, but I try not to, because once they're gone, they're, they get to one side, don't they? But some, of course, remain in the memory. And my standout book of the year is The Green Road by Anne Enright, which I just loved and which I now have sort of banged on about so much. It must look like I've sort of got shares in it or something. Um, but I just... Um, I just thought it was so good. It's a book about the matriarch of an Irish family, everybody drifting back to her for Christmas. There's an absolutely wonderful Christmas scene or several Christmas scenes in it, including a kind of terrifying moment that we've all experienced doing our Christmas shopping. But it's so brilliant in its structure. Everybody's story is told almost like a sort of short story, but they connect together absolutely fantastically. Richard, what's your choice? Uh, well, mine's a book called Signs Preceding the End of the World, which is by a Mexican writer called Yuri Herrera and is published by And Other Stories. And do you have shares in And Other Stories? You're very keen on that. Yeah. <laughs> no, there are no shares involved. There's no financial transaction at well, all. Although it is a new kind of publishing model, isn't it? And a very interesting one because when you buy And, and Other Stories, but you sort of you subscribe to yeah, them, you don't you? Yeah, you can subscribe, exactly. And they, they raise money for their future publications by getting subscribers to commit to having you know three or four books a year or whatever, which I think is, is fantastic. Fantastic, because it's a way of getting people to be really involved with the project as, as a whole. I suppose we see that with things like, um, you know, Unbound Books, you know, this which sort of crowdfunding, but it's crowdfunding plus actually kind of being involved and backing the idea of, of publishing books. And it's word of mouth, isn't it? Because they were brought to our attention by our readers who nominated them for the first book prize a few years back for Down the Rabbit Hole, which was another... Mexican book. Yeah, Juan Pablo Villalobos is his, his first in English, um, which got through to the shortlist, I think. They don't only do Mexican books, though, do they? No, certainly not. They do books from all over the world, and I, I think some English language as well. Uh, but Signs Preceding the End of the World is just a terrific book. It's, um, it's about a young Mexican woman called Makina, who has to go across the border into the, into the States in search of her brother. It tells about how she gets across the kind of the various deals she has to make um, with the various slightly shady people to get across the border and then to assure her a kind of passage back. And it's very deft in that it deals with the division in language between people in Mexico and, and the Anglos on the other side of the border. It deals with the kind of the vast chasm in terms of economic possibilities, economic change. And it also manages to be constantly surprising in the way that the story heads. It's a short little book, but, but a gem. So books in translation have had quite a good year this year, have they, relative to the terribleness of other years? Uh, well, actually, Chad Post at the 3% has done his count, as he usually does, and they're down, I think, 15% or something. There's fewer titles this year, with actually a, a branch of Amazon, who are now the biggest foreign language publisher by number of books published in terms of new translations, which is kind of extraordinary, seeing the, the, the behemoth of Amazon, which is usually considered to be a very challenging figure in, in publishing, actually riding 
heading to the to the rescue of, of such a highbrow niche concern as books in translation. But I mean, I think the the hope is that this is just one of those years whereby some small publishers who put out an awful lot in 2014 have put out slightly less this year and that it's going to bounce back again next year. But uh, there's a, a lot of fizz around books in translation, which it seems to be getting attention in a way that they never used to. Well, I'm going to round off with my choices, which come from the Guardian First Book Prize, which I spent a large proportion of my year reading, as did you, Alex. I did. And I, I, you know, I have to say, you can accuse me of log rolling, but I'm proud to do so. Physical, which was Andrew McMillan's first poetry collection, was fantastic, wasn't it? Alex? It really was. It was a sort of tonic in a way. You really felt that you were reading something that you hadn't read before. All about bodies and maleness, but actually, weirdly appealed to me, although I can't exactly be the intended demographic for it. Well, I mean, you know, this is why we have imaginations. Um, And another book I'd really like to put a word in for, although it did divide the reading groups, is Catherine Norbury's The Fish Ladder. Yes, I loved that book too. Her memoir of, well, all sorts of things, really. It was partly about um, her own adoption. It It was about having a miscarriage. It was tracing a river to its source. And it was fantastically in its way meandering wasn't it it sort of meander but it did so with such vibrancy and charm and kind of intelligence I love that book too and it was it absolutely sui generis wasn't it mm. there is no other yeah. book quite like it you could say it's new nature writing you could say it's memoir but actually it has that that sort of specialness that one looks for from books yes I hope she writes another and I'm sure she will And that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, we'll be taking a satirical look at the year with John Crace's Digested Reads. Until then, from me, Claire Armistead, from Alex Clark, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye, and we hope you have a very happy holiday reading all the books we've recommended. Never did need any money Everything was milk and honey Long walks by the river Talking about living together For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.